Welcome to a new season of The Public Morality. There are conflicting trends in American democracy widening disparities in election policy in the wake of the 2020 election. Republican states have seemingly embraced the notion offered by former President Donald Trump call for tightening rules based on a rigged election, allegations that we should add still have not been proven. And states that went Democratic are moving to make permanent many voting policies that helped turnout soar during the pandemic. I'm joined by CNN writer, producer, and author John Blake. And he will discuss from his latest article that addresses uh, not only the voting disparities, but also President Biden's lack of response in his view. John Blake, welcome to The Public Morality. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Washington State recently posted a map of, of voting laws enacted in each state. In states where Democrats have a majority in the state legislature, we've seen laws designed to increase turnout. Conversely, those states that have traditionally gone Republican have made voting more onerous. What does this say to you about the state of American democracy? It says to me that we're at this critical turning point. And I think there's an open-ended question about whether we can actually have a multiracial democracy in the future. And you can't have a vibrant democracy when you have half of the states in this country, they're making it harder to vote and others that are making easy the vote. You know, Lincoln talked about, you know, house divided can't stand. We're gonna become one thing or the other. I think we're gonna have become one thing or the other. We're gonna to have to become either this democracy, a genuine democracy, or we become something else. And I think it's an open-ended question about that. And I think one of the big problems is, is that there's one major political party. I think they've decided that they can't win through democratic rules. They have to subvert democracy to win. And that's a huge problem. And I don't know how it's going to turn out. In the piece that you penned for CNN.com back in June, which is the reason we wanted to have you on initially, um, you wrote, as I watched some Democrats handle the voting rights issue, I'm seeing a replay of a 19th century political horror story. It ended with black voters losing faith in the leaders who were supposed to protect them. Say more about that, if you would. Well, I, I live in Georgia, which is the epicenter of the whole uh, voting rights struggle. Uh, Georgia, in, in, in large part due to his black voters, delivered the pr- presidency to Biden and c- congressional control to Biden. And when I begin to think about how black voters in Georgia would react if there was no voting law passed, I began to recall a conversation I had with a historian about the 19th century. And I saw so many similar parallels in what happened in the 19th century after the Civil War, uh, you had a party that was supposed to be the ally of black voters, that was supposed to defend black voters' right to vote, but they abandoned that. And as a result, they lost power. And black voters played dearly, and they paid that price for, for, for a time that lasted up to a century. And so I decided, you know, golly, this is like watching a horror movie where you see the same mistake over and over again. They're not only making the same mistake, the Democratic Party, but they're using some of the same rhetoric that white allies of black voters did use in the late 19th century. So I said, let me write a story about that. And that's what you read. Mm-hmm. You, you know, one of the things I'm sure you've heard this pushback uh, when you talk about what you and I are calling um, voter suppression and, 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 and methods to make voting more difficult. One of the statements in response is, well, what's wrong with valid identification to vote? But 
What I'm hearing you write and, and what sort of draws some of your concerns is some of, some of this stuff is much more difficult than just having voter identification. You're, you're in Georgia, and I'm, I'm sure you, you know more about this, obviously, than I do. Your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, for example, here in Georgia, we have a new uh, voting law that makes it a crime to provide food and water to people standing in line to vote. I mean, clearly, that's targeted after black voters, which in Georgia tend to have a much longer wait than than uh, than white voters. Uh, when they were also talking about the Georgia law, one of the things they decided they were debating seriously to enact was something that would go after what we call souls to the polls. That was a kind of a traditional black church voting initiative where after church Sunday, they would go out to vote. Now they tabled it, they abandoned it only after fierce criticism. But again, this goes way beyond voter ID. Clearly what's happening across the country goes beyond voter ID. In fact, I'll, I'll give you this. Joe Manchin, Senator Joe Manchin came out a couple, I think about two months ago, said, I'm for voter ID. I mean, I, I'm fine with that. You didn't hear all these Republicans saying, okay, that's good, we can support it now. They didn't because he was for other things that would make voting easier. So I think the whole thing about voter ID, even I bet you, even if Democrats said, okay, we'll accept voter ID, which Stacey Abrams said, I support Joe Manchin and she was conditionally accepting it. Even if they said, yes, we'll accept that, they will find another reason not to make voting accessible to people of color. If we look at it from a, from a historical continuum, the, the rise to make voting more difficult really began in 2013 with the Supreme Court decision in Shelby County v. Holder. Um, and since that time, which sort of eliminated right. the preclearance of the Voting Rights Act, since that time, you've seen a consistent sort of right. systematic pattern uh, of making voting more difficult. Go ahead. Yeah, it, it's very open. To me, it's, it's sad to say, but the Voting Rights Act is pretty much dead. It's, it's, we, people aren't saying it. You know, they're using words like gutted, eviscerated. But the reason it was created was to stop all these these strategies by Southern legislators to prevent people from vote, from voting. It can't do that anymore. So it's dead. So, yes, since the Voting Rights Act, to me, what's, what's remarkable about this is that during the Voting Rights Act, uh, John Roberts, Chief Justice, wrote the decision and he said, our country has changed. We don't need this preclearance. But clearly, after 2013, Republican officials have been caught on record saying they want to make voting harder for people of color. President Trump has talked, the former President Trump has talked openly about, we don't want all these people to vote. And it's, it seems to me that judges, not just the Supreme Court, but judges all around have taken this approach where I, I hear no evil, I see no evil, even though it's very obvious what's happening with the Voting Rights Act. It's sad to say that the Voting Rights Act has really pretty much been killed. I mean, you say that because the point that uh, Ju Chief Justice John Roberts made about the country has changed and we don't need pre-clearance. Pre-clearance is the thing that kept states from going outside the boundaries, correct? Correct. I mean, the people like who created the Voting Rights Act, you know, President Lyndon Johnson was the president at the time. He was from Texas and he, he knew full well the history of all the different little ploys that Southern lawmakers came up with to make it more difficult for black people to vote. And many of them were race neutral. They didn't write, they didn't pass laws that said no black people could vote. They weren't that stupid, but they had all sorts of strategies. But pre-clearance -pre said that if any Southern 
any uh, assembly, any Southern legislature wanted to pass a voting rights law, any kind of change, they had to clear it through the Justice Department. And that stopped so many abuses. Not only did it stop so many abuses, it led to an explosion of Black political power that rippled all throughout the country. That's when you start having all these Black elected officials coming from places like Mississippi, Atlanta, Georgia. One could argue you would not have a President Obama if it wasn't for the Voting Rights Act and preclearance. So what happened with the Voting Rights Act when they eviscerated it in 2013, they got rid of the very mechanism that made this country a democracy for the first time. People say we've been a democracy since 1776. No, I would argue this country didn't become a democracy until 1965 with the passage of the Voting Rights Act. And that preclearance mechanism made that possible. And that's been taken away. I want to stay right there for a moment since you are in Georgia and you're aware of the, of, of the Georgia law. Talk, talk to me about a world where preclearance still exists and the Georgia law that did pass the state legislature. Um, how would that work? Would they, would they have brought that to the Justice Department? Explain to our listeners how that would work. If, if preclearance was still in effect, I would argue the Georgia Assembly that passed this, this new voting uh, rights, this new voting law, I would argue they wouldn't even have passed that law. They, I think they would have known they would have never gotten away with it. I mean, laws that make it so much more harder for certain people to vote, um, they wouldn't even pass it. See, one of the great things about having preclearance uh, in place, it wasn't just that it stopped laws that were clear, voting laws that were clearly discriminatory. It, it, it stopped people from even contemplating or doing things in, in the first place. And now with no preclearance, I think it seems like there are Southern legislatures and people, not even out, even outside the South, who feel like they can get away with anything. There's nothing to stop them now anymore. But the Georgia law would have never passed with pre-clearance. Even if it had passed, the Justice Department would have struck it down. I'm speaking with CNN senior writer and producer John Blake uh, about the um, legislation um, to make voting more difficult and, and a piece that he wrote for CNN.com sort of addressing a, a historical error. We're going to get to that shortly. John, wh- why is it, in your view, easy to accept uh, voter malfeasance when there is absolutely no evidence to support it? Well, <laughs> I think it's, you know, social scientists call it motivated reason, confirmation bias, I think there were fancy terms to say that uh, people will invent reasons to justify what they've already decided to do. And I think that applies to, to voting rights. I mean, look, the country, there are people in this, in this country that saw that the country was changing with the election of President Obama. And they saw, look, we just had a big census report that just came out about a month ago that said that for the first time, White people in this country declined for the first time since 1790. And there's explosive growth among Asian, Latino people, multiracial people, black people. These people, to answer your question, they see those numbers. So they need a justification to change the electorate, to make sure that these people can vote freely so they can stay in power. So you invent a reason. I mean, races have been inventing reasons to do things and dressing it up in all sorts of rhetoric for the longest time. They they was they wouldn't say we don't want black people to vote in Mississippi. They would say states' rights. You know, it's the same old game. So that's that's my answer to that question. Uh, and then on a practical side, you may or may not be aware of this, um, but 
all when you look at the, the majority of the Republican legislature, most of them were reelected in um, twenty twenty. To your knowledge, did any is there any Republican legislature in twenty twenty who was in the twenty twenty election uh, complain that there was a voting irregularities when with their name on the ballot? Not that I'm aware of. That doesn't mean it didn't happen. I'm just generally aware that there was tremendous accusation of there was widespread accusations of fraud in Republican circles about the 2020 election. And I think there was something like 60 cases where they would take where they took their cases to court and they had a chance to make their case that fraud existed. And there was no case where they proved that in the court. It's the, the accusations of fraud. They're a fraud. They've never proven it. But yet, though they couldn't prove it in a court of law, they have used these accusations of fraud to justify all these all these laws that make voting harder. Now, I would imagine uh, some might conclude after reading your piece um, that uh, writing in a contemporary context, invoking the legacy of the Jim Crow era, that you're making a linear argument that might get dismissed as hyperbole. How would you respond to a charge like that? Well, I would respond by asking him, was January 6th hyperbole? We almost had an, a coup or insurrection in this country. I would ask them, uh, was Charlottesville, when white men marched openly in public with neo-Nazi signs talking about Jews will not replace us, was that hyperbole? I would ask them about the rhetoric of former President Trump, who rose to power on a racist conspiracy birther theory. Was that hyperbole? The point I'm trying to make is, is that I think there's a segment of white America that has consistently downplayed the threat and the persistence of white supremacy in this country. And they don't like these uh, these links between what's happening today and what's happening in the past. But clearly they're happening. Voter suppression was part of Jim Crow. It made it possible. And what's happening now is voter suppression across the country. Clearly a link to me. I'm going to move now to sort of the crux of your piece, which was, which was President Biden's response and, and, and the lack thereof. And if you would, could you give us a a brief distillation of, of, of the central arguments of that piece, if you would. Yeah, the central argument is that President Biden and Democratic leaders that are not going all in for voting reform so they can protect black voters and their right to vote, that they're making the same, the same blunder that their counterparts made in the late 19th century. So after the Civil War, when black people first got the right to vote, they were the primary basis supporters for the then Republican Party, which was the Progressive Party. But as white resistance to black voters grew, though their leaders, their white allies abandoned them, and they abandoned them with this thought that we don't really need black voters. We can appeal to white voters with an economic message. We're gonna rebuild infrastructure through the South. We're gonna rebuild the ports and railways. We shouldn't become too dependent on black voters. We shouldn't expend all our political capital and making sure black voters vote. And as a result, they lost black voters. They lost power throughout the South. And I'm saying that President Biden and Democratic leaders that don't push for all, that don't go all in to protect the right to vote, they're making some of the same mistakes. They're even using some of the same rhetoric. If you don't have power, nothing else matters. And you don't have power if you can't protect your primary supporters and black voters among the most loyal supporters of the Democratic Party. With that, if, if President Biden, uh, and I'm assuming that, that you still feel he hasn't gone all in yet, but if he were to put the full right. weight of the Oval Office behind, say, voting rights, 
what would that look like for you? It would look like very much what you see what he's doing with infrastructure. Is there any question that Biden really wants this? You see all the time and energy he's he's he spent leaning on senators, congressional people talking about it. Clearly, he's making this the centerpiece of this is what I want to do as a president. This is his FDR moment. To me, if Biden had the same urgency with Voting Rights Act, he would have to, he would spend the same type of urgency and the time, um, you know, just agitating for voting rights change, but also he would be willing to lean on senators like Manchin and reluctant people. But the main thing is he would be willing to go after the filibuster, to get rid of the filibuster. If that's what it took, he would make that clear. If that's what we have to do to make sure everyone has the same equal and free right to vote, I will do it. He has not said that. He has retreated from it. He has said, in fact, if we get rid of the filibuster, it will throw off. It'll be chaos. I would ask people to think of it this way. Think about Mitch McConnell, Republican leaders. Was there any doubt when it came to Supreme Court, was there any doubt that he would do anything that was necessary to make sure that conservative judges made, made the Supreme Court? There is no doubt. He would break precedent. He would do anything. He would squeeze any little ounce of power he had. Everybody knows that. The same has not been true of President Biden when it comes to voting rights. So so I'm going to take the contrarian position in just a minute and have you, have you hack away at it. Um, the contrarian argument could be infrastructure legislation gives the president a political win, which could strengthen his hand on voting matters. How would you respond to that? I would, I would respond to two things. One is look at your history. That was the same thinking that white allies of black voters had in the late 19th century. They thought if they could rebuild the South and run on the economic message, that that would win them over white voters. They were wrong. And the second part of that question is this, and this is something that a historian says in my in my in my uh, piece. White voters who are consumed by racial grievances, they won't be a lot of them won't be won over by economic messages. They are willing to hurt themselves economically if it hurts black voters more. That's history. That's fact. So I, I think that's that's a too optimistic point of view. If, even if you have these infrastructure wins, I don't think that will change all these voting restriction laws that are being passed across the country. And it's still going to come down to you are not looking out for your main primary basis supporters. What about those that would say, well, John Blake, you're not factoring in that, that these onerous voting laws, as you call them, cut both ways. And there'll be some Republicans that will also be hurt by these laws enacted. How, how, how do you respond to that? I would say, look at history again. You know, I talk a lot about uh, Reconstruction and Jim Crow and my and, and my uh, my the piece that you referred to. And clearly, the Jim Crow voting rights laws that targeted Black voters they also hurt White voters. They made it more difficult for them to vote. But White people in power will were willing to accept that. So a lot of these voting rights laws they they just won't affect Black people. They will affect some poor White voters. But the point I'm making is. They don't care. They'll look, they look at, they're looking at the math. So long as it hurts black voters more, if it makes it more difficult for them to vote, it's still worth the cost. Uh, in, your, in your opinion, how much um, could President Biden do, uh, given that many point out that elections, for the most part, are the, the jurisdiction of states? How much can, can, can Biden do realistically, in your view? Well, there's a big debate about that. I mean, 
clearly we had a we had a voting rights act that was passed that enshrined the power of the federal government to protect the voting rights of black people and that trumped the i hate to use that term but that that was had more power than what states could do with elections so i think that debate about you know do states have all the power with elections is a debate and clearly the voting rights act the fact that it was passed says no when it comes to certain fundamental rights such as voting federal power trumps local power yeah states have the right to administer elections the way they want but they don't have the right to deny or make it harder for certain types of people to vote. So that would be my answer to that. Mm. Now, and you sort of alluded to this earlier, but it's no secret that President Biden won the Democratic nomination on the momentum of African-American voters, uh, specifically, I would say, black women. Does President uh, Biden, in your view, owe a heavier lift to black voters, not only because of uh, the present moment, but also because of the, the because of the past that you also articulate, articulate in your piece? Oh, I think there's no doubt that if it wasn't for black voters, Biden wouldn't be president. I mean, we, we remember the primary. Bernie Sanders had all that momentum. And then he went into South Carolina and, and all those black voters, some say because of pragmatism, said, we're going to go with Biden. And, and black voters in Georgia gave him congressional control. See, I mean, that's part of what I talked about in, in the piece, that a lot of black voters say, we've been, we're not only being taken granted by Biden, but we've been taken granted in the past by democratic leaders. So the question becomes, as Republican legislatures begin to throw up more voting restrictions and make it more difficult to vote, what a lot of black activists are, are worried about in Georgia is people might say, black voters might say, why should I go through this gauntlet? of trying to vote, to go through all these hassles when these people aren't loyal to me. And they might set out these elections. So it's not just voter restrictions will make it harder for some people to vote. I think if they feel like they're being abandoned by voters like uh, leaders like Biden, that they'll say, I just, I won't vote at all. I just, I, I, I just give up on the whole political process itself. But yes, there's no question that President Biden owes his electoral sense to black voters. Hmm. Well, one of the things I'm, I'm hearing you say, not only you said it in your piece, uh, not explicitly, but you, uh, but you also said here in, in our conversation, it, it's almost what I'm hearing you say is that the failure to take action, I mean, some people might say, well, but if you don't vote, you're voting for the other side. And I'm, and I'm hearing you say that, that, that a number of black voters, especially the ones in these disenfranchised states, are on the cusp of it not mattering whether they vote or not. Yeah, totally. And I, and I think that's extremely dangerous because, you know, uh, Biden won Georgia by something like 11,000 votes. These are very small margins. So if you have people sitting out elections, if you have you know black voters in places like North Carolina or Georgia saying, you know what, I voted for Biden. I went. I braved that whole COVID nineteen, you know, pandemic. I braved all these voting restrictions just to vote. And when he got into office, he didn't do anything to really protect my right to vote. So I'm not going to vote. That spreads. Democrats don't win Georgia. If Democrats don't win Georgia and say 2000 next presidential election, they might not win the election. And so yes, I'm saying that these things have consequences not only for the next election. But these things can last for generations after generations after generations. You know, one of the things that struck me, we sort of touched on it before our interview started, but a lot of what I hear you saying echoes a criticism that Martin Luther King made back in 1963 with his letter from Birmingham jail and that elected officials that came up with reasons why right now 
was not the right time. And I'm thinking of the We the People Act and, and, and its inability to move at the same speed as some of this owner, owner's le- legislation has moved. And I, I want to get your thoughts on that. Well, yeah, it's something I talk about at the end of my piece. When people say to black voters or people now that now is not the right time to pass this, 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 these voting rights laws, they are repeating the same lines that people have used in the past. Whenever there's been some civil rights struggle and there's been some needed momentum, a lot of times white moderates will say this isn't the right time. And that's, you know, as you alluded to, that's why King wrote the letter from a Birmingham jail. He was talking about, he was more frustrated by the white moderates who kept on saying, this is not the right time for demonstration. This is not time for civil disobedience. And I, I see the same type of rhetoric. And it's, to me, it comes down to, it's kind of somewhat insulting when people who have the unfettered right to vote, who don't have to deal with these voting restrictions, will tell other people, now's the right, now's not the right time. Why is it not the right time for me to have the same rights that you have? Why do I have to wait and you, when you don't? I think it's kind of patronizing as well. So yes, that, that whole thing about this is not the right time, it is never the right time for any kind of civil rights victory we had, whether it was Selma, you know, whether it was Birmingham, it was never the right time. And you could probably take that line and, and, and extend it to it wasn't the right time to uh, initiate the 13th Amendment. It wasn't the right time for women's suffrage. It, it, that, that's right. that's always, always been the argument for change, right? It's not, it's not the right time for change. I, I totally agree. Yeah, I totally agree. I want, I want to go back to a theme that you raised in your 2004 book, Children of the Movement. You alluded to some of the people you interviewed, namely those who were descendants of uh, segregationists during this during the civil rights era, saw their fathers work more about grasping for power, given the dynamics in the South, more so than overt racism. And I'm wondering how you see the present moment. Is it similar, or, or how, how how do you compare it? Yeah, I, I see the same. I see the same denial at operation. I think you know. You mentioned my book, and I talked to the children of segregationist leaders like. You know, George Wallace, Governor Ross Burnett of Mississippi. And what stunned me is that very few of them could really see the racism in their father. They said, oh, my father wasn't a racist. He was just a politician. And so it was they had this ability to deny what was so obvious to us. And to me, I see the same impulse at work. You see all these voter restriction laws passed. Why? Because of a lie. What is the lie? That there was massive fraud in the 2020 presidential election. Never proven in court, but that's inconvenient, so we ignore it. So I I see that as a way that white supremacy works, that you need denial. You need people not to see what is obvious to everyone. I heard that in those conversations in my book, when people deny the racism that was so obvious to everyone about their parents. I see that now when people deny the racism that doesn't work with a lot of these voter restriction laws. It's the same thing. You just... Judges are great at it, you know, a lot of judges, oh, I don't see that, you know, we don't see that racism, we don't acknowledge it. So it's it's a classic way that white supremacy persists. Um, it's no coincidence that when you think of the uh, cities that were raised as potentially being fraudulent, not overly being, but potentially being fraudulent yeah. where they were positioned, it's Philadelphia, it's Atlanta, it's Detroit. I mean, what what do these three places have in common? large black urban populations. I mean, you're not going to be hearing, you know, uh, you know, someplace in Idaho or something like that, or uh, Utah, it's not Salt Lake City, right? 
that's never going to happen. See, that's what I'm saying. They're not even they're not even hardly bothering to mask the racial attentions of what they're doing, which makes what Chief Justice Roberts says in 2013 that our country has changed all the more absurd. I mean, like they're not even bothering to mask it. I mean, I have a feeling as time goes on in the years ahead that there will be more and more white po politicians and leaders who will not even use dog whistles. They'll be more and more worried about their racism. Unlike the Jim Crow era, where many of the insidious practices were kept away from the national spotlight, at least until the 1960s, we now live in a real-time world. So instead of the dire consequences that the voting laws, especially those designed to make voting more difficult, can create, isn't there also an inverse possibility here that this will actually increase voter turnout because people have that advance notice that they didn't have back in the 1960s? I'm just saying that if I know that the state of Georgia is trying to keep me from voting. Does that now in the 21st century, could that also make me more determined to vote, which would increase, which, which could increase turnout? It could, but I will respond to that with two, two ways. One is, yes, it could. And that's what a lot of voting rights activists that they're banking on. They said, if you make us mad, we turn out. But I will respond two ways. If you see these voter restrictions and you don't see a President Biden and Democratic leaders doing everything they can to stop it, I would argue that that could make you say, I don't want to turn out the vote. They ain't looking out for me. So why am I going to go through all this hassle to vote? It doesn't make any difference. So I could argue that it could discourage people from voting. And two, I think it gets to another thing. This, this is somebody I quoted in my story. Why aren't, you know, nobody ever expects white voters to out-organize voter suppression. Why do black voters have to be superhuman and turn out in, in, in these incredible numbers just to exercise the same basic right to vote that everyone else has? I think that's wrong to always expect black people to do the, super, the superhuman thing to exercise our right to vote when other people don't have to do that. I, I don't, I, and I think it's dangerous to keep on banking on that type of enthusiasm in every election because that might not happen. I mean, one person I talked to said, if we don't have the same turnout in 2020, you know, she said we're pretty much, and she used the F word and wasn't, and it wasn't the filibuster word. I, I just think that's too optimistic. Uh, and, and I think it's actually risky to expect black voters to be superhuman and turn out in record numbers every election when we don't have the same expectation for other groups of voters. You know, you, you, you spend time uh, in your piece juxtaposing the present moment you know, with, with past. In, in your research, has there ever been a moment when voting was made more difficult that the country was better for it? Oh, that's a really good question. No. I mean, I mean, here's, here's the thing about voting that I've come to see. I think there's always been a long tradition in this country where very powerful people really didn't want a lot of people to vote. And, and that's been pretty much, I, I would argue that for most of our history, they didn't want people to vote. I mean, I mean, it wasn't like the founding fathers when they, when they signed the declaration that, you know, women could vote, that black people could vote, that Native Americans could vote. So I don't think there's ever been that time. And, and when we've had those times when other people couldn't vote, I don't think it made the country better. Look, what, what I say is this, did restricting the right to vote in the South. Did it make the South better? No. Jim Crow, I would argue, and a lot of historians would argue, really destroyed the South. 
The South became this like economic backwater for 100 years. They had all this wasted human potential because they wouldn't allow black people, poor white people, women to vote and all these different people. A lot of people didn't want to move south. It had no economic vitality. It was like this feudal system. So I think whenever we've had these, these periods in history where we didn't take advantage of all the different talents of all the contributions from people, we suffered. So not only are voting restrictions, I think, like racist and wrong, but I think they're stupid, they're silly, they backfire. They just, they short circuit democracy. They short circuit human potential. And that's what we have. That's one of the best things we have over other countries in the world. We have all this dynamism, you know, these people from different points of view and contributions, different. I mean, we all these immigrants that bring their 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 work ethic and their ideas here. And when we have periods in our country where we restrict the right to vote, we suffer from that. And we suffer from the loss of these contributions of these people. Now, short of President Biden turning over saying, I wonder what John Blaze got to say today. And let me read his piece. Give us a, 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 descript, a, a prescription of, of, of what you'd like to see happen between now and November 2022. I would like to see, I would like to see one, Republicans and independent voters treat the right to vote as something that ultimately is going to help them in the long run. I, I would like to see them not accept that they're a group of Americans where it's going to be more difficult to vote. So I would I would like to see that elevated to almost like a national concern. Like this, this is something that goes beyond political parties. Number two, I think for the Democratic Party, if you're, if you're a Democrat, I think they have to get rid of the filibuster. I mean, I, I, if, you, if you want to protect the right of vote, the filibuster is the obstacle. And I, I think ultimately they're going to have to do that sooner or later. And, and I don't see I don't see any other way around that. Well, on that note, could you explain? Because I think a lot of people I hear, I talk to a lot of people who don't understand why the filo, getting rid of the filibuster is key. Do you, could you explain that? For, you have a second to explain why that? Why that? Yeah. Well, the filibuster is ruled that you have to have like sixty votes to you know pass legislation, and so you have a, a Voting Rights Act. You want to pass these, this, you know, the John Laws Voting Rights Act, We the People Act, and technically, you don't, you're not supposed to need 60 votes. You know, you should be able to do it with 50, 51 votes. But the way the filibuster works, you can't get it. So, the filibuster has been kind of like this. How can I say? It's almost been like this, uh, this horror movie villain that nobody can get rid of. You can't have major change in Congress because it requires this new threshold of votes. So if you want to make serious changes in this country, and a lot of people agree that we need serious changes on whether it's not just voting rights, but say climate change, uh, all other issues, you have to deal with the filibuster. And if you don't get rid of the filibuster, you won't have those changes. As simple as that. John Blake, CNN senior writer and producer. Sir, I, I want to thank you so much for your uh, candid uh, observations. It's, it's been an honor to be in conversation with you. Thank you for inviting me. Stay tuned as I speak with Boston University constitutional law professor Robert Sy about Texas's controversial abortion law on the public morality. <laughs> Welcome back. 
The state of Texas has instituted the nation's most restrictive abortion law. The law prohibits abortion after six weeks. Proponents of women's reproductive rights fear the law is an ominous precursor to overturning Roe v. Wade, which affirmed women's right to choose an abortion without government restriction. At the time of this broadcast, the Justice Department under President Biden is suing the state of Texas in an attempt to block the enforcement of the strict abortion law. I'm joined by constitutional law professor Robert Tsai. Professor Tsai uh, teaches constitutional law at Boston University. He is the author of several books. His most recent, Practical Equality, Forging Justice in a Divided Nation. Professor Robert Tsai, welcome to The Public Morality. Great to be with you. Mm-hmm. I, I want to begin, uh, sir, by having you outline uh, the Texas abortion law as you understand it. Happy to do that. It's a pretty complicated piece of legislation. And uh, maybe the, be- the best place to start is, is that, you know, the substantive aspects of the law uh, bans abortion the moment a doctor detects uh, a heartbeat. And it also obligates doctors within the state of Texas to check for that heartbeat. Now, there's some practical things that uh, then naturally flow from that, right? You've got to, the doctor has to use an invasive ultrasound as opposed to the, you know, the one on the belly. It also means that, practically speaking, uh, we're talking about a functional ban of about, about six weeks or so. Now, that's the substantive part of the ban. The ban puts off limits people who aid and abet the abortion. So that could include everyone from the doctor to the nurse to the um, clinic owner to a family member or a friend who helps someone get to the place knowing that their friend or loved one is going there for the purpose of terminating pregnancy. So there's there's a kind of potentially very broad uh, reach for the substantive aspects of the ban. Then there's some other things, some like procedural wrinkles, and, and you might want to talk about that. But the biggest one that's gotten the most attention is what's been described as the bounty provision. But basically, there is an effort to do two things. One is to privatize the enforcement of the law. And at the same time, I think what they're trying to do is they're trying to deter abortion broadly, right? So what they do is they authorize any person with information about someone wanting to terminate pregnancy to be able to go to court and to sue, not to sue the woman herself, they're very clear about that, but anyone who aids or abets the termination of pregnancy. And then there's like a sort of a cash prize right, attached to this. They get they get to be in on the fine that's imposed. Every violation is like minimum ten thousand uh, dollars, and and the person then is incentivized to do that. So that's those are the sort of the key aspects to it. There are other things which we might describe as efforts to insulate uh, the law further from judges who might want to strike it down. Hmm. And if you want to get in that, we're happy to talk about that. Well. You can help me here because I I tend to look at things. I try to look beyond the issue itself, beyond abortion. And I tend to look at things in terms of our our collective civic virtues. So as I read the bill, my way of understanding it is, or I should say the law because it is law. My way of understanding it, at, at the point the woman becomes pregnant for six weeks, it takes me, I mean, my personal view, it takes me at least six weeks to know I have athlete's foot. That aside... At six weeks, sovereignty is temporarily transferred to the unborn, but at birth, 
sovereignty reverts to the mother. Am I, am I missing something? Did I just oversimplify that? How does <laughs> explain that, please? Yeah, it, it depends on what you mean by sovereignty. I mean, if, I think that, I mean, if you want to take the perspective, try to understand, you know, from the from the perspective of the legislators and perspective of the abolitionists, the, the anti-abortion uh, folks and what they're thinking, right? I don't think they, th- they think of it in terms of sovereignty in that way. They think of what they're doing is they're trying to incentivize virtuous citizens who care about protecting, you know, the liberty and dignity of the unborn child. That's how they think about it. Mm. Now, that's not how the Supreme Court has, at least until recently, right, talked about the the woman's autonomy or, or, or sovereignty, if you prefer, the, the ability to make important decisions about her life and her body and her future. Obviously, those who are proponents of this law who backed it um, who made it happen, don't accept that part of a woman's uh, sovereignty or autonomy over her body and her future. So, you know, insofar as we want to talk in those terms, I think that there is a complete and utter rejection of that of that idea. Hmm. Now, let's talk about the, uh, the 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 bounty the bounty itself. Ten thousand dollars for someone to turn in someone who who is legally involved in in, in the abortion. Now, again, to me. That that sounds like it, it violates the constitutionally protected right to privacy, which Roe and subs- and before that Griswold uh, v. Connecticut were based on. Yeah, I mean, to to a lot of people who, you know, still treat the the the, the latest pronouncements and 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 by the way, those pronouncements have gone pretty far back. That a woman does in fact enjoy a constitutional right of autonomy over her body as to these important questions that even if we just look at the ban here, right, the, the, what looks like a functional six week ban, that looks like a complete um, effort to undermine, repudiate, reject that core uh, idea. And I, I think that's, that's what I look at. I mean, even Justice Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts, who sided with the, you know, there's only three liberals left on the court in that 5-4 decision uh, leaving the uh, Texas law in place momentarily. You know, he points out that it looks to him like a complete repudiation of at least uh, the president as it exists. Now, he's no friend of the president. I mean, I think what he prefers a more orderly resolution of these questions. And he might then vote with the rest of the conservatives to, 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 to reject Casey and perhaps Roe. But I think he I think he's got problems with the way that is being done in Texas. Hmm. Now, under the Texas law, it, it, um, you, I think you've alluded to this earlier, that that it insulates at least attempts to state officials from being the subject of lit- litigation. How is this then enforced? Yeah, this is great. So it raises the way they're doing it is to try to take advantage of certain bodies of law. Um, there are two that I can think of right, right off the top of my hand. One is this idea that people generally can't run into federal court and sue, even to vindicate constitutional rights, unless they themselves can point to like a particular injury that they've suffered. Okay, and wh- what they're what they're doing here is they're saying. Oh, look, the the woman is the rights bearer. The woman is the one who has constitutional right and not necessarily the people who are helping her and not the, the, the necessarily the providers and so forth. At least that's this is the theory. And so if we make the woman off limits, 
uh, as someone that you know we can sue or anybody on the street can sue and they can only go after everybody else then they can't raise the kind of injury that would allow them to challenge this law and that's the strategy that at least so far right caught up at least five members of the supreme court and said hmm that's interesting right there are procedural complexities here this is what the uh, the five said in the unsigned opinion letting the texas laws uh, go into effect that worked at least for the moment uh, and the other part of this is what we might call a state sovereignty so there is a piece of this where uh, you know uh, the st each state generally enjoys a kind of immunity in federal court from being sued and they say that a lot when they pass the law and so and so they're trying to really hide behind that shield as much as possible. I'm speaking with constitutional law professor Robert Tsai uh, about the uh, recent uh, Texas abortion law. Professor Tsai, how, uh, give us your analysis of the, of the court, the unsigned majority, denying injunction relief. Is it, in your view, a precursor that some conclude puts a Roe v. Wade on tenuous ground? Yes, I mean, I think we have to take a historical perspective on this. And I, and I think that it's this is the moment and that decision, the moment that a lot of us have been warning about for a long time, right? That, that politics have consequences and the court has long been chipping away at Roe v. Wade and uh, the political process has generated uh, political leaders as well as judges that think that Roe was illegitimate from the start. And uh, what this vote leaving uh, the Texas law in place for the moment tells us, I think, is that there are minimum five justices who are comfortable with completely upsetting the expectations and rights of millions of Americans, millions of women, because that's what their refusal to get involved happened, right? I mean, even, I mean, this outraged uh, Chief, you know, Chief Justice Roberts to join the liberals. And so if we think about the additions to the court, uh, we see that both of the last president's uh, nominations ended up being to the right of Chief Justice Roberts. So on, on already conservative court on questions like this, it became even more conservative. And so for many of us, this has been just a matter of time, the right case, the right moment, the right way for a number of the justices to finally say that abortion rights is not the kind of thing that judges should be involved in. Not, not to make this conversation overly political, but, but your last answer, I can't help but think that back in 2016, then Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said that eight months before a presidential election was not enough time to confirm an individual that President Obama uh, nominated, and at the same time, eight days was more than enough time before presidential election 2020 to hold hold nomination hearings uh, for someone that President Trump nominated, and and that shift right there would would probably would have had a different outcome in terms of those seeking injunctive relief. Yeah, no no question at all, right? I mean, if we start with the proposition that the three, like you know, the last major statement, the really big statement was a 92 on abortion in the Casey case. And the three Republican nominated justices that found a way to save Roe then, right? Kennedy, Souter, O'Connor are no longer on the court. 
we have a way different court, right, than even then when we thought Roe was imperiled in the early 90s. That what the best way to understand what happened with Amy Coney Barrett's, you know, quick uh, nomination and confirmation is they saw this was the moment and that 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 uh, a case like this would come down the pike soon and they would do everything to, in a way, repay the politics and the movements that have been so committed to overturning Roe all these years. Hmm. Uh, so I think that's the best way to think about that. And yes, you, you're right. It would have made a huge difference if there had been a way to block it uh, until the next president took office. Though much, and, and obviously in recent days, has been about the Texas law, there's still that Mississippi abortion law that the courts have already agreed to hear that's hanging out there. And could that be the dagger for, for Roe? It, it could be. You know, that law, there, there, I think there are ways, most people think there are ways for the court to strike down that law without confronting Roe and striking it down. In other words, for example, I mean, in a way, we're kind of down to this question, which is how comfortable is a new justice like Amy Coney Barrett, right, um, right now doing that explicitly? Because one of the things that you got to know if you know your history is, is that the moment that happens, we should expect that that becomes the number one issue in national politics and becomes the national, you know, the, the biggest issue in state politics in a number of places. And so, you know, does she and do key members of that court, even if they want to do it, want to do it, for example, before the next major election? This could have a huge impact on control of the Senate and so forth. You know, formally, judges aren't supposed to think about these things, but we also know that the Supreme Court of the United States is not a typical court, right? It is a quasi-political institution, mm-hmm. and it is it is part of the political elite in Washington. So, you know, that's true. But 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 I, I'm thinking about certain landmark cases. I'm thinking about Brown v. Board. I'm thinking about mm-hmm. Brandenburg. So Miranda. So the, in that sense, the court is not totally immune to the mood of the uh, of, of of the culture. Is that would that be correct? Yeah. No, I agree with you 100 about that. That. The, it, it's almost like as, as part of the political elite, members of the court pay attention to two things at once. One is, what are other members or institutions that are part of that elite doing? What is Congress saying? What does the current president think about issues? And for example, that, that's why they take the uh, views of the Solicitor General of the United States so seriously. That, that person is often treated as what's called right the 10th justice. But I think there's also, and certain justices may be a little bit more sensitive to this, but sensitive to the, the second thing, which is a sort of broader mood of the country. And people who pay attention to what justices say and, and how they vote have identified the so-called median justice or the swing justices. And so Kennedy, O'Connor were, were often justices who wrote and explicitly incorporated, right, how politics was changing, how laws were changing. We saw evidence of that in in Kennedy's uh, decisions that affected gay rights, right? That people mobilized outside and 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 passed laws that treated LGBTQ people with uh, with dignity, equal respect. That that uh, he said sort of should affect the way that federal judges think about notions of equality and dignity. So. Agree with you 100% on that claim. <laughs> and, and this is purely uh, speculation, but if the court is going to hear that early next year, the Mississippi case, 
they will release that decision what, around June, which will be plenty of time for momentum for the upcoming midterm elections, coupled with the fact that you're probably going to have some momentum about President Biden sort of regurgitating Roosevelt's desire to add more justice to the court. Dare I say pack the court, but add more justices. Uh, how do you see that? If, if that were to come to fruition, if they were to strike, uh, uphold the uh, Mississippi case. Yeah, no, I think you've put your finger on something that's very intriguing. So, you know, it's always been the case that on the most important questions of public morality facing us as Americans, that we don't tend to treat what the Supreme Court says as the last word. And oftentimes these things have played out over a long period of time and presidents have sometimes been involved at key moments. We see that right now is one of those key moments. And, you know, Biden has asked his attorney general to respond aggressively to protect his vision of the Constitution, which is which includes a defense of Roe v. Wade uh, and the notion of, you know, dignity, autonomy and equality that he thinks is embedded in that. DOJ just filed a lawsuit. And so we'll see if that added weight, that added gravitas, what I talk about in my writings as moments of presidential leadership over individual rights, whether that makes a difference. There are moments when it has. You mentioned FDR. I think this is a, a, a wonderful example. I mean, one of the things I talk about in my writings is a moment in the early 1940s when a reluctant court was not willing to say that you know a, a student uh, who was a Jehovah's Witness uh, had a First Amendment right to refuse to salute the American flag, 1941. And one of the things that the Roosevelt administration did was to deny support for that ruling. Justice Frankfurt, who wrote that initial opinion, thought that's exactly what uh, FDI would have wanted, but he never publicly embraced that opinion, and members of his administration denounced it. And then FDR appointed justices uh, to, in fact, that explicitly rejected that decision and denounced it. And so in, in, uh, a couple of years later, we see the Supreme Court reverse itself in a very, very striking move. I think that's an example of the kind of thing that could happen probably over a longer period of time when a president takes a very vision and is very committed to individual rights of, of a sort. Uh, we also see it, of course, in the gay rights arena. But I think that there's an opportunity here. I think he sees that opportunity here. I think that, you know, Americans generally believe should be some kind of a right here, uh, even if they have qualms still about how broad it ought to be. So we'll see. I think we're in one of those great battles now uh, between the president of the United States, uh, you know, a handful of states that want to uh, neither right, and now a court that wants to side with those states. Well, look at it this way: we'll just, it just creates more reasons to have you back on the public morality, uh, <laughs> Professor Robert Sy, Boston University constitutional law professor. Thank you, sir, for joining me today on the public morality. It's my pleasure. Anytime. The public morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron B Y R O N at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, and SoundCloud. Those listening to the Public Morality on WSNC can now listen on its new app. 
Using your mobile device, simply click on your application page, search WSNC 90.5, click open, and listen from anywhere. Once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WJAB in Huntsville, Alabama for allowing us to broadcast the public morality at their studios. The public morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the public morality, I'm Byron Williams. Thank you.